0: This episode of Live from CapTime's Times Idea Fest is brought to you by Zimbrick Honda in Madison, a proud sponsor of Wisconsin Athletics. Hello, welcome to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. I'm Eric Lawrenson with the Capital Times. Over the course of the next week, we're bringing you recordings of interviews and conversations from our first-ever fest at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today, a conversation with Barry Alvarez, the former coach of the Wisconsin Badgers football team and the current director of athletics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In his talk with Sports Illustrated editor Chris Stone, Alvarez speaks on the evolution of the football program since the 1990s the issue of student-athlete pay, and the growing debate over the safety of the game. All right, let's get started. I hope you enjoy the talk.
1: Um,
2: I want to thank the Cap Times for having me and for having Barry. The last time I saw Barry was 22 years ago. It was on a Sunday morning um, after they had been beaten by Colorado, 43 to seven. I looked it up this morning. This was 1995. (laughs) Thanks for reminding me. I had to go into Barry's office that morning, and there's there's um, no more dispiriting experience as a journalist than seeing a, a football coach the morning after he's lost by five touchdowns. Um, you were professional, but um, you were
1: short. So. <laughs> you know, there's nothing worse in a coach's life than the 24 hours after a loss, and. Uh, my, you know what it's interesting my family recognized that so they stayed away from me after a loss you know that that night the next morning I'm gone before they get up coaches are going to be you go into that bunker mode you're in the office trying to figure out what went wrong and how you're going to correct it and, uh, and and deal with it you know and you have to get it out of your system before you before you approach and, and visit with your your coaches and your athletes because you have to have that positive look and you can't you know, be defeated in, in how you act because they're watching every move that you make. So that's a that's a difficult time in, in, in a coach's life.
2: Well, needless to say, um, I, I'm very pleased with yesterday's result. As I was telling my uh, friends, Travis Collins and Jillian Murphy, who live out here, I, I've been a little obsessed this weekend. They they have to beat BYU. They have to beat BYU. <laughs> I, I can't interview Barry Alvarez because even though Barry hasn't been a football coach for a while, he still is a football coach. And... I'm guessing that those those losses don't, you know. Well, they're they're a little
1: different. They're not quite as painful. Right. I don't have to face a team or face coaches, but in football, in particular, that's the that's the engine that drives our athletic department, and uh, that's two thirds of our revenue, is through the football. and and, uh, And I'm still deeply involved in in. Realize the importance of it and I I watch the games. I you know, I normally host a suite with with people that we're we're entertaining and, and My wife, you know gives them the rules before we the game starts. My husband's gonna sit in the corner Don't talk to him right <laughs> leave him alone Maybe at halftime or at a timeout, but don't talk to him during the game and because uh, I'm watching i because I see something I can I, I'll, I'll I talk to Paul frequently and if I see something that uh, good bad, whatever I, I, it'd be foolish for me not to share that. Now, I'm not going to give instructions uh, or second guess, but you know, another set of eyes is always good.
2: Before I dive into the questions I, I prepared for this, I, I do want to note uh, one thing. I did see an ad in, in the Cap Times uh, a couple of days ago from Lane Kiffin, and I think it's worth um, worth mentioning that they had come up here for, for last weekend's game and were effectively marooned here because of the storm back south, and You guys took care of him, you put him up, and he was so moved he took out a full page ad in the Cap Times, um, which I think is worth Googling because it's uh, really touching. And I'm just wondering who was the last coach who actually publicly, opposing coach who actually publicly said, on Wisconsin. You know, but talk a little bit about that. You know, it's, I mean, it was, I think it's the type of gesture I think we all like to believe that we're capable of, but you actually, you and your
1: staff actually executed against. There, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, I was contacted Wednesday. I, I have a long relationship with the Kiffin family. Uh, Lane's father uh, played at Nebraska is from Nebraska. and when I was a freshman player at Nebraska, he was, he was a, a graduate assistant. When I finished playing and I was a grad, going to grad school and, 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 and as a graduate assistant, he then was a full time coach. So, you know, I, I know him very well. He actually got me my first high school coach, head coaching job. So I go way back with that family. And uh, so the father, Monty, called me on Wednesday. They're trying to figure out what they were going to do. They're talking about buying out, trying to get out of the game, canceling the game. And every other school, in Florida canceled their game. Now that, you know, that, that game would not be made up. There's no way we would have found a way to make that game up. So, you know, not only for us, but the, the economic impact for Madison. Um, it really puts us, puts us behind. That's, you know, we have 80,000 tickets were sold already, that, uh, that's three and a half million dollars. plus. That doesn't count the suites in uh, those preferred seating How do you handle that? So there was just so many questions we would have had. And so um, I knew they were trying to decide what they were going to do. Teams were canceling. I knew their athletic director was being painted in a corner. So Chris McIntosh, uh, my deputy, and I uh, visited, and I said, get a hold of uh, Pat Chung, their AD. Tell him we'll take care of him. They they won first they said, could you play on Friday? We said no. Would you play at 9 a.m.? It's a TV game. Couldn't do that. Um tell, they're they're supposed to evac- evacuate anyhow. So tell them that we will take care of them. If they get stuck here, how many, regardless of how many days, we will take care of them. We'll we'll take care of anything, everything after the game Saturday, we will handle. So it was it was an olive branch towards them to help them. Chung Pat told me that the last time that happened, it took them a week to find all their players after, after they they canceled a game. You know, you've got probably 95% of those players live in the Miami area. They're going to be hit by the hurricane. Their families are going to be uh, affected by the hurricane. Um, So, and they're they're being ordered to get out of town so they got a bigger plane they brought the families of the coaches and every player on their team and they brought them and it you know they played the game and then you know that's obviously when the hurricane hit they couldn't get back until uh i think it was wednesday at four o'clock so um we i matched up every one of our people Equipment people with their equipment people, strength coaches with their strength coaches, our medical people with their medical people, um, and so they, they'd have breakfast. They stayed at the Marriott, have breakfast there. They'd come in, they would meet. Uh, our guys practice in the morning. They would they would meet while our guys practiced. They practiced later in the afternoon. We fed them at our training table. We had different arrangements, and we had some people in the community, um, Pizza Hut. Uh, contacted us. Pizza had uh, sent pizza out there for uh, uh, for snacks for them afterwards. Um, the Great Dane had them one night, uh, fed them and 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 took care of them for their snacks. We, we took care of, of lunch and dinner. So it was like camp. It, it, and our wives, uh, my wife and Paul's wife, arranged for their wives and families to go to the Dells everything taken care of for the day. So it was like a ball trip for them. And, and they were able to practice. It was like it, it's, it was, they had their regular preparation. They went out yesterday and won 45 So there's no way if they stay, you, they couldn't even get back to their facilities. They had no place to practice had they stayed in Florida. But, you know, that's, it helped us, and it really helped them let's go back to when you first got to madison and this
2: was um, 1990 am i correct yeah so 1990 i mean listen we have you have a campus full of kids here who just assume that wisconsin's going to win 9 to 11 games a year good chance you're going to go to the rose bowl you are a top flight you are an elite program when you got here in 1990 that wasn't the case you know just talk a little bit about what Wisconsin football looked like in 1990, what college football itself looked in 1990, and how much
1: that's changed over the last 25 years from, from your vantage point. Well, I'll start with Wisconsin football. It was a mess. The athletic department was a mess. Uh, I, I likened it to a poorly run high school. Donna Shalala said it was, it was like an old ma and pa grocery store. That's how it was run. Um, we probably had five players on our team that were legitimate Big Ten players. The facilities were bad. The athletic department was in was in debt. Um, you know, we inherited a stadium that was probably a third occupied on game days. Um, and the, there was no winning tradition. If you think about it, they, they, Wisconsin had been to five bowl games in the history of the school and won uh, a bowl game in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, now a defunct bowl, um, but that, that was their legacy. And so uh, people ask me, and Lou Holtz, to this day, we, I had Lou here about a month ago, and he talked to several of our groups, and he said when, when Barry told me, uh, this was before my last last game there, we are playing uh, Colorado and, in the uh, Orange Bowl, and, and I told him that Pat Richter called and offered me the job the night before the game, and I told Lou, that I was going to take the job. And he said, oh, don't, don't take that job. We can get you a good job. You know? so. But I, I really, you know, I had, I had um, coached at Iowa. I knew the Big Ten. I recruited Wisconsin. I had the top two players already committed to go to Notre Dame from the state. I knew I could put a good staff together, and I, knew I, th- I thought I knew how to win in, in the league. Um, I knew the issues at Wisconsin. Uh, the best players in the state were not staying here. They were all leaving. So the first thing I had to do was deal with the high school coaches in the state and let them know that I want to work with them. I needed their help in sending the best players to me. And we would do all we could to help improve high school football. They they grilled me. They they tested me pretty good. And uh, I think that first year we might have lost We lost the two guys that I had committed. And... um, From then on, probably for the 16 years that I coached, we probably lost maybe a handful of kids from the state that we wanted. And that was the first key. You have to get good players. And then you have to uh, design a plan for success. And everyone's a little bit different. So if you look at Wisconsin, what kind of players can we consistently recruit? Well, you look around the state. So you start with your state. Most kids are gonna stay close to home. So you start with your state. Uh, we're going to have an occasional Michael Bennett and, and uh, Melvin Gordon, uh, occasional running back and, and, and some receivers occasionally. But we will consistently have the biggest linemen available in our state. I mean, we have giants in our state. And just look at the ethnic background of, of, of our state. It's Scandinavian, it's German, it's Swedish. They're big, They're big people. They're late bloomers. We'd, that's how I devised our plan. We're going to recruit our state. We're going to go east to, to, for the skilled players and we the pockets of, of in areas around the country where, where I wanted to recruit were areas where I, the coaches that I hired uh, had relationships. And then you des- devise your plan. We're going to be a physical team. We're going to run the ball. We're going to play good fundamentals. We're not going to beat ourselves. Um, and that's that's why we've stayed consistent. Um, we were able to do that, do it successfully, and we could match up physically with, you know, when I said, we have to beat Ohio State and Michigan. If you want to win this league, that's who you have to beat. And so our program was designed to, to, to be able to compete with them. And uh, we've stayed with that plan. Paul understood. Brett understood the plan. Gary told me he understood it, but didn't want to, didn't want to stick with it. Um, so we kind of took a step backward, although we kept, still kept winning nine and 10 games. And Paul came in and patched it up, and we're back to where we need to be as far as the type of players we're recruiting and in the state.
2: Well, that was a great plan, but obviously you have to execute against that plan. I mean, what was the timeline you set for yourself
1: when you arrived here in Madison? Uh, yeah, I can remember telling the people, just be patient. Um, I thought we could be competitive in a few years. Because I mean, you're starting from scratch, you're going to have to play with the, the young players that you recruited. Uh, I think we, you know, we won one game my first year. But our guys, the thing I liked, and I told somebody the other day, asked me, when, when did you know you turned the corner? And I thought, the last game of our first year, even though we're 1-10, and 10, uh, we played a good Michigan State team the last game of the year, and we, our guys really competed hard. Uh, we dropped a touchdown pass from about the five-yard line, or we'd have won that game. And I knew we had the kids. We're going to play with young players, but um, we're going to be competitive from then on, and, and and we were.
2: I'm going to ask one more question before I get to a question from the crowd. Um, we were talking earlier about, from my outsider's perspective, I live in New York, I look at Wisconsin, and I see a national program. I think national program, but you cautioned me against that, pointing out, yes, you you have your recruiting zone, but it's not maybe quite as national as... Outsiders like myself might think is not quite as national as say, in Ohio State or Michigan. And, you know, one, what would it take to get to that level? Because I do think of Wisconsin and like the prestige of the university. Let's set aside the athletic program is, is so considerable. But what would it take for Wisconsin to get to that level? And do you want to get to that level? Or are you kind of content with the model that you've built now?
1: That's really a good question. And I've asked that question for 20-some years. Um, we've been more successful, more consistent than any of the teams in our league, yet we still are not a sexy school. If you're, t- I find that
2: incredibly difficult to believe. Well,
1: if you sit back and if you're a five-star recruit, you're the best player at your position in the country, and you live in California, first, say California, the majority of your players come from the southeast, the west, southwest. The, you know, the majority of the guys that are drafted in the pros come from those areas. They're, they're warm weather areas. Uh, for us to get them, they're going to have to travel. Uh, there's still something about the traditional names and, and history of, and brands of Ohio State, Michigan, Notre Dame, Um, those, they can throw out lines around the country and maybe interest somebody. When I coached at Notre Dame, I could get into any living room in the country of a good player, may not be able to get them, but I can get in that living room and talk to a player about Notre Dame. Um, for some reason, we're not there now East coast, because we have such a a large percentage of East coast athletes we can go in there and and we can compete for the better players because they've got to go someplace. They've got to travel. They've got to, they've got to go even if it's, you know, Pittsburgh or Penn state, Penn state used to own that area. They still have to travel. So it's not, there's no loyalties, but if you're in the Southeast, you know, to leave and have to drive through all these different schools, plus the ones that your parents can come and see you play in in Georgia and North in the Carolinas and, in Tennessee and all those places with good programs It's it's difficult to, to lure those people the top ones now. We do a good job and have done a good job of Evaluating athletes and finding those that fit our culture here, and we're not going to compromise academics and and that's what And I can't say that for all schools but we're not going to compromise and we're gonna get guys that we think fit in here and, and, and represent our university and people that get behind a microphone and, and, and that you're proud of.
2: You have 85, play, 85 scholarship players. Right. What percentage of them, even at an Ohio State or Wisconsin or Michigan are gonna play in the pros? What percentage? Situation? Won't play? Or will play. Will or play? Won't. It doesn't matter.
1: 2%? 2%? Will
2: Maybe. Play. 2% will play in the pros. To me, that represents a real opportunity for a school like Wisconsin because I'm starting to look at schools, prestige schools like Stanford, Northwestern, even Duke and Vanderbilt are performing at a higher level than they have in the past. Given the fact that so few of these players are actually going to play in the NFL, doesn't that afford an opportunity for a school like Wisconsin with its prestigious academic <clears throat> background in the same way it did for Stanford to to leverage that? and in there's plenty of smart kids out there who are blue chip football players as well.
1: Now there's 2% that play, but there are 90% think they can play. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you have, to, you have to deal with that. And the thing we talked to them about, you're coming here to get an education. That's what I would talk to the parents about. You're, you're coming to a world-class university. You're not, we're not gonna cut any corners with classes. You're going to take meat and potatoes courses, and you're going to leave here. We're going to give, support you academically so that you leave here with a degree that's not just a sheet of paper that says you attended school for four or five years. You you came here, and you're going to earn a degree that's valuable.
2: It's interesting. I, I speak on campuses quite a bit, and one of the things I've noticed in recent years, I've heard much more from from since. Like, when I was growing up, the notion of paying a player was – I mean, that was a rules violation, a serious rules violation. You would, you would never contemplate it. It's like you have a scholarship four years. That seemed, seems great. But now I hear a lot more from kids who really believe that players should be paid because the revenues have grown so much in the sport. The coaches are being paid you know, very generous salaries, and this revenue is built, being built on the talents and the backs of these players, so why not give them a cut? And I realize it's a very complicated question. It's not the first time you've heard it. I'm certain, but what is your response
1: to that? Well, first of all, we are paying players. You know, first they, they they're, you know, I, I had this question in a grad school class by a football player, uh, Josh Oglesby. Happened to be, he was in his, he was a grad assistant, so he had been here six years, working on. He's about a year away from his master's. Uh, probably had five surgeries. I said, how many? I asked. The class, how many of you have loans and will owe money when you leave here? Three-fourths of the class had their hands up. How much will you owe Josh? Nothing, so you're gonna have six years of school. Um, you're gonna have your me- degree. We've taken care of all your medical needs. We've given you academic health. We've had, you've had private, you had sessions with our, You know the strength coaches we have to pay. We've given you a training table. Um, you have a, a, a bad tooth, we take care of your teeth. We have taken care of you. You won't owe a penny. You've had re- room, bo- books, board, tuition, and fees. Uh, all that taken care of. Now, we have done some really good things in the last couple of years. Uh, we pay full cost of attendance for our athletes now. Uh, they, took, they took the restrictions off of meals so we can pay for the meals, which we do. We pay, we, we feed all of our student athletes breakfast. That includes the walk-ons or, or like vars, uh, men's crew is not on scholarship. We pay every athlete, pay for the breakfast of every athlete and those that are on training table, we, that doesn't come out of their check, we pay for that. So an athlete on our campus, a scholarship athlete on our campus, football, basketball player, um, they're, they're probably going to have, after room and board, eight hundred fifty dollars cash per month. That's tax-free, plus everything taken care of with their academics. That's pretty. That's pretty solid. Many of them will have a hard time. When, you know, there are people that are graduating that aren't making that aren't doing that well once they get out into the real world.
2: Where do you think this ultimately leads? Do you think we've? Do you see a model someday when maybe? Athletes are getting even a little bit more than they're getting yeah. right now.
1: Here's, here's a model that I think would make sense. And I, I hear this being thrown out there more and more uh, for likeness, for their likeness in video games or whatever. Whatever that portion of it is goes into some type of an annuity. And when the athlete graduates, a portion of that money goes to them. I think that would be fair. I think it would be fair, too. I think think that that would would be be fair. fair. I'd have no problem with that.
2: Um, Let's take a few questions from the crowd here. Um, The first one is, what are the chances or what would it take to bring baseball
1: back to UW-Madison? Baseball right now, uh, as far as where we are, doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, Financially, it doesn't make sense. Uh, to, To start a baseball program, I just did the research again it's about to run the program between two and a half. And I, this is off of numbers from every other, from the business managers and every other Big Ten school. The budget is between two and a half to $3 million. That doesn't count leasing a field. We don't have a baseball field. Um, and then adding a woman's sport with comparable um, Opportunities and then now that that would give you 50 more athletes that you have to take care of as far as increasing all all your services would have to be increased to handle those 50 students so right now we're able to handle all 23 sports and give them a budget that it, that that allows them to be competitive we'd have to cut budgets you know we wouldn't be able to operate at that extent and it's it's too expensive and you know, I told some of the baseball people the thing you should be fighting for is spring and summer baseball. Then, then, then might make sense. We're we're not flying teams the entire spring. A couple years ago, uh, the first year our bat- softball team went to the NC two A tournament, their first thirty six games were played on the road. We didn't have a home game. We'd have the weather wasn't good enough to play. And I you know. I, the last, I, last I, I checked, went back, our last year we had baseball here, I think the number of, uh, the average attendance was between 35 and 50. Not 100, 35 and 50 people. So, so
2: baseball won't be coming back to Madison anytime soon. Well, I,
1: you know, I, every year at this time, everybody, I love baseball. It was my favorite sport for a long time. Um, and the Brewers are playing well, and everybody, I like to watch baseball. But, you know, I inherited an athletic department without baseball, and I was not charged to bring it back. And it it financially does, just doesn't make sense.
2: Um, one of the things that we were talking about prior to this was, you know, we hear about football coaches, athletic administrators. I shouldn't just restrict this to football, About you know, um, molding young men, molding young women, and to – use their platforms to build something bigger than their than their football brands and we see things every day that i'm sure make you proud that happen with uw alums let's take the great example of jj watt and everything he's done for the uh, houston community in the wake of hurricane harvey raising i believe it's more than 37 million dollars and and um, i mean that's something that you can really hold up these are the people you want Coming to Wisconsin, representing Wisconsin. Then there's other people who are faces of kind of grayer areas, you know, with the CTE and and the public safety issue with football. Another one of your graduates, Chris Borland, you know, has been very much a front-facing personality there. And, but I would assume this is what you want your students to be, even if you might not agree with them necessarily. Absolutely, I,
1: I think. You know, that's one of the strengths, and that's one of the things you try to teach a student-athlete when they come. That's one of the things that, that makes you proud, that they feel comfortable that they can speak out. If, you want, if Chris Borland wants to speak out on CTE uh, and feel strongly about it, and speak intelligently about it, research it, and make that his life's work right now uh, to make things better and to, to educate people, I'm all for it. That's what you come here for, to be educated, to make decisions like that. And, and to be able to speak out for something. So uh, I, I feel very comfortable. Nigel Hayes was another example. Did I agree with everything Nigel did? Absolutely not. But that's his right, and, that's, and, and, he, and he articulated the things he believed in. And I have to respect that, and, and, the, and the coaches respected that. So um, Chris Borland called me the day he was, I had a message the day that, that he was going to retire from football. And left a message. I, he said, Chris, and I knew it was an Ohio number. I didn't even know who it was. I thought it was another one of my players. I forgot about him. And I didn't think about him retiring from football. And, and when I talked to him, I said, well, that, you know, that, I can live with, that's fine, Chris. He said, well, I was really worried, Coach, that you'd be upset with me. I, why would I be upset if you decide not to play pro football? I mean, that's, that's your choice. And I know you're a deep thinker, and you put a lot of thought into it. On the public safety issue and concussions
2: you know it's one of the dominant themes of a sport that you've spent your entire life around um something a sport that you care about a great deal um and you've you know you have family members playing the sport now you have two grandsons who are playing on a team a senior and a freshman and you know that's blood do you look at the public safety issue differently than you did
1: five years ago 10 years ago certainly 20 30 years it wasn't on the forefront as it is today i think our i love the game everything i have in my life has been given to me because of football i went to school on a on a scholarship met my wife there um have a family because of it educated because of it um i'm concerned and everybody in in our business is concerned about football and the future of football Uh, i think we've addressed um the concussion issue. Are trying to address it. Number one, with the rules of the game and how you teach the game and how you start teaching the game, um, and how to tackle and eliminate the head. Um, equipment people are doing a, a much better job in, in um, trying to research and, and build a better helmet for protection. We're one of the schools that are monitoring every day at practice and games. The you know the the, the impact made. Uh, the concussion protocol we're trying to address the things one the one area that I'm not happy with is that we really haven't come back with or published more of the results of the things that we've done and how how much the concussions have have lowered since we started implementing all these things I haven't seen those results yet I know that we they're, they're, were much better and we're, you know, it's not. You don't celebrate somebody getting blown up in a in a Sunday pro football game, uh, an unprotected athlete, and somebody buries his helmet in, in his face. Um, you know, you celebrated that. ESPN would have twenty of the biggest hits. You know, you're, you're going to kill somebody. You know, and and, and so now, somebody does that, they're ejected from the game. We're pro- trying to protect the athletes, and I think you're seeing that more. It's not. Um, it's accepted from youth football on up and I think it'll continue it'll continue to get better so we're addressing it
2: is there any part of you that genuinely is fearful or concerned about the very future of the game itself
1: yeah yeah absolutely you know when you see former players not allowing their their sons or sons to play and um, I'm I'm concerned I, I see the numbers in some areas where they're eliminating or there's not enough interest in junior high football or uh you know there, there's there's dwindling numbers so yes i am concerned
2: so what what opportunities does that i mean we've been speaking almost exclusively about football dominates the conversation when it comes to college sports where where are the growing sports what are the growing sports what are the opportunities that you see for other sports to Maybe they're not going to become the revenue generator that football is. That seems virtually impossible in our lifetimes. No, but we have
1: two. You know what? It, football is our major generator. It's two thirds of our of our income. Basketball is one third. Um, those are the only two revenue generators. Now hockey will be, has been, and will be. But the other twenty sports, uh, you're not going to generate any uh, any revenue. But they're important to us. We've made a commitment in our league, in our university. To be broad based, in in what we offer, um, you know. So, you you look at our volleyball program and the interest in our vol. We're, we're a top five volleyball program right now, top ten. You know, uh, we've done a great job in recruiting there. We compete. We compete at the very highest level. And um, women's hockey is one of the top two or three in the country every year. Um, you know, our track program has a long history. I, 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 I think, uh, you know, our program is, is solid. You know, I'm really proud of the, the coaches that we have and the people that, that they bring in, the recruits that they bring in, and, and how we compete at a very
2: high level. I've heard a lot this weekend about women's volleyball, which on a personal level obviously pleases me, having a family member who was a player here. But it really does seem like it's really going under, undergoing a little bit of a mini-explosion.
1: Yeah, Kelly Sheffield has done it from the minute he came in. You know, he took his fir- the first team he had to the to the final NC2A finals. Recruits at a very high level. We've tried to upgrade, continue to upgrade the field house as far as their locker rooms, their lounges, the scoreboard. Uh, we have a great atmosphere there. Um, you know, we'll continue to to do things there. We, we'll consider uh, doing the the balcony. Uh, I actually want to do a total remodel clean up the, the field house and sand, clean it up, put the new windows in and, and do that whole street and make that, that's the front door of our, of our department. And, and I think we can do a, a little facelift there, but, um, volleyball's if you haven't gone to a volleyball game, you want to go. Yeah.
2: Well, here's another question from the crowd. It's, um, a non football question. How surprised are you with
1: just how quickly the men's hockey program has turned around? Uh, you know, I, I I didn't have a doubt that that this group would do a good job. It surprised me they did it as soon as they did, uh, essentially with the same players, taking them to to play at a much higher level, uh, to play three overtime. I think it was three overtimes for the chance to go play in the NC2A tournament. Their first year, um, I know how hard they recruit. A lot of the recruits hadn't shown haven't shown up yet. They're just starting to come in, but. The NHL players or coaches want to send their players to to let Tony and his guys work with them and develop them, and they'll let them stay an extra year. So I think we'll you know we made a huge jump. It surprised me how how much we improved. I think we'll make another jump this year and continue to get better.
2: Getting back to football, one one thing that surprised me is you know when I look at a game you had against uh, Alabama a couple of years ago, it's like. Wisconsin-Alabama should be played in Camp Randall or in Tuscaloosa. Notre Dame should be played in Camp Randall or South Bend.
1: And you're down with that, but the other schools aren't down with that. Yeah, it's hard to make that happen. A lot of people won't go home and home. Uh, we try. I, I, it took me 10 years to get Notre Dame on the schedule. Um, when, when I saw year, 10 years ago that they were going to drop Michigan, they were thinking about dropping Purdue, uh, I had I was I was giving a speech at Notre Dame and I Jack Swarbrick the athletic director had just been hired. And I went in and met with him, and uh, told him I'd like to take one of those spots. And we we worked for a long time, and finally we were, and it was a kind of a backdoor thing. They they have a contract with NBC. They call it it's their Shamrock Series, where they play one non-conference game or one neutral site game each year. And uh, they wanted to play at Lambeau, and he called them, and I w- work with, with Murph up at uh, with the Packers, trying to do another game, and and he said we'd like you know would you be interested? And I said absolutely, but we you need to reciprocate with another game so that we can uh, we're obligated to have an a game with where the Big Ten has the rights. So the actually the Lambeau game is their game; they're the home team. The Soldier Field game is ours and so that's that's how we put that game together if we want to play notre dame that was the only way we we're going to play and we wasn't going to be home and home uh we i try all the time but to, to why won't they agree up, to
2: it? why won't alabama agree to come to camp randall why will Notre Dame it, not agree? well it's
1: not just agree to it you have it has to fit your schedule now we play nine conference games every year so that gives you three non-conference um so every other year you're and i, I like to base our schedule off of seven home games so if you're playing Every, you know, every other year you're playing four of those Big Ten games at home, you know, and, and, and you only have three. It's hard to match up. You're going to have to buy some people to come in here. And um, it, it's hard to match. And they're going through the same thing. So it's hard to match up your schedules so that you still, when you have four that, you know, four Big Ten games that you have three non-conference games all that all end up at home. That's why it, it's easier to get a neutral site game, and the payout is about the same. And you still you still have to worry about you know it's a hundred and thirty five million dollar budget that you're dealing with, and and, and footballs the, the, you know is is a large part of that.
2: I'm not quite ready to let go of this. I, I understand all this. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir here. But how great would Alabama? Well, I, I have no question Wisconsin, about that. Would here be? I'd love for our guys
1: be. to experience playing at Alabama, playing at LSU we just signed a contract with with UCLA. Now it's it's odd a little bit, but those guys are going to play in the in the Rose Bowl, whether they win the Big 10 championship or not. You know, so we we, we continue to try to do that.
2: I guess my point here is that it just feels I understand the economic reasons for doing it and there're logistical reasons that make all the sense in the world, but to me what makes college football college football is the home crowds, kind of the campus environment, you know. I remember growing up when Alabama and USC would Alternate year over year and be like a one v two game, you know. Notre Dame Michigan was th- those were the greatest games of the late eighties and early nineties, and it just part of it is like you want to kind of even as college football and college sports become big business, you want it still to feel like college sports. You want it to feel like college, and you know I'm approaching this with a certain bias um, because I think what makes college football so distinctive, and we're going to get into this a little bit from the NFL is it's crowds, it's environments, it's youth, and um, but one of the big discussions this morning. I'm done preaching. Um, one of the big discussions uh, uh, I heard on uh, social media this morning was yesterday was a pretty exciting day in college football. You had some great endings. You had the sc Texas game. You had Memphis, UCLA, and you Florida Tennessee, um, and we've seen a lot of these games. And this is right around a time that the NFL had what I would argue is like as an NFL fan, like I can't remember worse weekend of games than last weekend in the NFL. So maybe people, there's a recency bias here, but is the college game a better game
1: than the pro game and why? I think it's more interesting because you have a different style. You know, if you watch our opponents every week, you're going to have a different style of play every week according to their geographic area or their coach's philosophy the nfl um, is a cookie cutter league and a friend of mine dennis erickson shared this with me he was the head coach of the 49ers and seattle and i and, and fired at both places he'd been the head coach at miami and i said if you had it all to do over again what would you do in the nfl and he said i I would run the offense that I know, um, but no one ever had ever run it in the NFL, and everybody uses – at that time, there were two different styles. You use what uh, 49ers coach uh, – Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh. used Bill Walsh, his, uh, his style, West Coast offense, or you use Ernie Zampezi's zone scheme. Those are the two things that everyone used because they were proven, and they had won the Super Bowls with them. And no, no one was – everyone was afraid to break away from it because if it didn't work the first year, you're out of there. Uh, and if you watch the pros, they're pretty consistent on, on the styles of play. And all, then it comes down to matchups and who has the best quarterback and best players. So I think college football, is, for me, is much more exciting.
2: It's – I mean, does that give you a certain advantage to a, or a Big Ten school or, or Wisconsin itself – over, say, a Big 12, which is so far removed from the way they played in the pros. Not completely removed, but your st- the style of playing in the Big 10 is more conducive to delivering guys to the NFL. Does that give you an inherent recruiting advantage?
1: Not really. I don't think, I don't think players think of that a lot. Some of them do. If you're a lineman uh, you might, or a running back, you might want to think about coming here. You know, other places. You know, when you're a recruiter, you can paint that picture a lot of different ways. Right. You know, so if you're a receiver, why would you want to go to Wisconsin? They're only going to throw the ball 20 times a game. You come here, we're going to throw it 50.
2: Well, how do you feel when you see a Big 12 game? You know, it's like 65 to 62,
1: and each team has 700 yards How do I total feel? I, I don't care. Yeah. I really don't. I, some people love to watch that. I don't particularly care for it. But, you know, guy, people have to do – they can recruit that type of person. They have access to skilled players. Um, Art Browse, when he went to – Baylor and I, I use browse because his son was a coordinator last week for Florida Atlantic young kid and uh, they, they ran that all the way through high school it, you go to the state of Texas that's all they run from high schools all the way through. So um, we we would be foolish to do something like that. but if it helps you win and that's the type of athletes that you can recruit more power to you. I have no problem with that. I don't like it. Because I'm too slow. I'd have, I'd have, I could have never played in that, that style. <laughs> I mean, this, this is a hypothetical.
2: I mean, if, if you could have your choice of to lock down, if Wisconsin could have free reign to one of three's national recruiting centers,
1: California, Texas, or Florida, which one would you take? Florida. More players? More to pick from? I, I actually would take any of them. <laughs> I just I, there are more in Florida
2: this is kind of following up on our discussion of, uh, of the safety issue most of collegiate games even professional games originate in the last one to two centuries can you create a safe game as exciting as football
1: now, that's a pretty deep question and I, to create another game that would offer all the values that, that, that are inherent to football um, that's safe And I think the answer would, my initial answer, let's make football safer. Um, In coaching,
2: administration, leadership, you've been incredibly successful. We'll just leave it
1: there. No. You know, what are your key elements for success? I think surrounding myself with good people, um, being able to motivate the people around you, as I tell I tell my guy, I try to hire people smarter than me. And I, uh, that's pretty easy. And but I I I, I, I try to communicate. I, I think back to when I was an assistant coach. I wanted tell me what you want and let me coach it. Let me do it. And uh, that's what I do with my people. I, I you know I'm I'm not a micromanager. I'm gonna communicate what I want done, how I want it, the big picture, how it fits. And I want them to do it and uh, give them plenty of rain to get it done. If they have issues, then come back to me and then always communicate uh, to me what if there is an issue and, and where
2: we are. You transformed an athletic department here. In, in our industry, in media, like we're facing some challenges that media has never faced before and like transformation and disruption is the word that we hear every day in our lives. How? Can you talk a little bit more about, going back to one of the original questions we had here, it's like kind of how you, how you execute culture change, You know how you bring culture change to such, this isn't a small entity here, this isn't a mom and pop shop, this is a very large business.
1: I think, I, I've got a about a two hour speech on this, but one of the things. You have three minutes. No, okay, I'll try to condense it. Um, I think what I try to do is allow everyone to know, regardless of what their their responsibility is, that whatever their role is, the role is important to the success of of the team. As a football coach, I'd, I'd speak to an auditorium, 120 players, and talk about every uh, each role. You're going to have starters. You're going to have backups. You're going to have some guys that that are on scout team. They won't ever touch the field. Um, but you have to emulate our opponent every week. That's very important. Some of you are just going to run down under a kick. That's important for, for a portion of the game. Regardless of what your job is, you have to accept your role and do it well. And if we have success, you'll have something to do with it. I tell my staff this. I, I've got probably 450 employees in the athletic department. I give them the same talk. As I start the year, I don't care, you're a secretary, you're a custodian, um, you're the assistant trainer, you work in you you you're a dietitian. Your job is important, and we all have to be able to count on you. We don't have to worry. About, we know you're going to do your job, and it's important. And when we have success, you can feel some pride in that. Um, I can remember meeting with this my first year, meeting as we went on. You meet with the ticket manager you meet with everybody that touched our program to let them know what, that, that they were important and that we needed them to do their job and this is how i wanted it done and this is what i expected of you and then you just you know you put your arms around them you motivate them and you let and then you then there's consistency it's the, the same thing repeated what i've done within the athletic department i've tried to hire people that have played for me or us that understand the culture of wisconsin and what i want I want to do things the right way. I don't want to beat ourselves. Um, and right down the line. So if a guy played for me, he heard that. He, I preached it to him for five years. My deputy played for me. He was a two-time All-American. Paul Chris played here. His offensive coordinator played for me. Defensive coordinator played for me. Strength coach played for me. Two of the other coaches played here. Um, Tony Granado played here. You know, it goes they all understand the culture they will there, there'll be consistency of what our student-athletes and the other people working in the department here so um, I, I think it's it's consistency and it's and it's uh, it, it's the discipline of how you continue passing that message out and it's and it's difficult when you came here in 1990
2: how long do you think you'd stay
1: my plan and my goal when, when, I, when I left college and I started coaching, what I wanted to do was I idolized my college coach, Bob Devaney at Nebraska. I wanted to do what he did. I wanted to go to a place that hadn't won before, turn it around, win, take over the athletic director's job, and, and keep it consistently a winner so that someday people would say, that is the guy that turned it around. So I wasn't looking. I didn't come here to leave. I told Pat Richter in my interview. He said, "What you know? What what? What's your vision? What do you, what do you see in your future? What are your goals?" I said, I'm, "My next job will be your job." And and I'm going to keep. I'm going to keep our program. I, I, I did. I said that in the interview. Well, and that- we had you know we had opportunities to take NFL jobs, a, a number of the top what people would consider the top football jobs in the country. We did not want to be a family of, ba- vag- you know, just kept moving. My mother, my, well, my, mother, my wife, this... who's like my mother, said, we, I want someplace where we can be buried. <laughs> so I wasn't planning on I didn't come here to leave. That seems to happen to a lot of people I know who come to
2: Wisconsin. You know, they come here and here they are 12 years later, right? <laughs> but anyways, listen, I want to thank everybody. The Cap Times, Barry Alvarez, uh, really enjoyed this.
0: This episode of Live from Cap Time's Idea Fest was brought to you by Zimbrick Honda and Madison, a proud sponsor of Wisconsin Athletics.